evening, everybody. Good to see you. Glad to be here. Glad to have survived the torrential downpour. Uh, good to see you. I'm Adam, and uh, hope you're glad to be here. Uh, this morning, um, we did something crazy, and we took our two girls to the first ever football game, and uh, we went to see the great University of North Texas and the meanest of greens destroy SMU. And that's a big deal in North Texas. There, I got an eagle claw out there. Call, call. The Methodists didn't pray as much as I did, I think, for that first victory at home. Uh, so my voice, <clears throat> let's say, uh, is a little deeper and mellower and nicer tonight. So if my voice sounds weird, it's because I was cheering on the mean green and I was eagle calling and doing all that. So uh, would you turn to Jonah with me? Y'all don't care about North Texas. I know y'all. It's all right. Hey, turn to Jonah. We're in Jonah. Um, we've been talking about Jonah, and we've been talking about God's mercy for nations and neighbors, and tonight our message is called uh, Unlikely Mercy and Unlikely Neighbors. God surprises us. He's always up to that, and he had called Jonah. He said, Jonah, I want you to go, and I want you to preach, and Jonah said, nope, And Jonah bolted for a place called Tarshish. That's what we talked about last week. But God is a God who's on mission. And God is pursuing the world. He is pursuing people. And in a book in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, it says that God is reconciling the world to Himself through Christ Jesus. And so, while we look through this series, we need to keep before us central that God is a God on mission. That God is seeking to rescue those people who are lost. And a lot of times, He's merciful and reconciling all the wrong types of people. The people that we wouldn't expect Him to do. And I think I just need to, I just want, let's pray. Let's pray before we start. I hope you've turned to Jonah. I just think we need to pray as we begin our time. And we'll look at this God who is on mission for unlikely folk with an unlikely mercy. Would you join me and let's just take another breath and let's pray again, okay? Father, right now I'm just really thankful. I'm really grateful. I'm grateful that we have a space to gather together safely. And I'm grateful for life and breath. And I'm grateful for Your presence among us. So Lord, uh, as we worship You and remember who You are and just recenter our hearts this week, Um, Would we just have a special sense of your nearness and a special sense, maybe for the first time all week, uh, of where you're working and where you're present. And Lord, we just ask that that you would give us the grace to celebrate that. And so Lord, as I'm thinking about how thankful I am, Lord, I'm keenly aware of the situation of our brothers and sisters in northern Iraq and just the, just, just the monstrosity and just the terror and the people and the kids hiding in schools and fleeing. And I think of those Nazarenes, the Christians over there, and I just pray that You would be especially near to them and that Your strength and Your goodness would even be on display in this difficult time, Lord. 
And so right now, we, we see ISIS as enemies. And so we just, we just pray that Your kingdom would invade and would break in in unlikely and surprising ways, Lord. It doesn't make sense to just talk about this stuff in this book tonight safely if we don't remember that You are active and present and working and on mission in all parts of the world, even in the hardest places. So Lord, would You just give us uh, not only an awareness of You tonight as we worship, but just an awareness of our brothers and sisters that are struggling and that are seeking You. Would You just give them strength and just be especially near and strong in their midst, even in this most horrifying, horrific of times. So Lord, we just thank You here in Garland and right now for life and breath and all it took just to get us here safely. So we praise You and we celebrate that Your kingdom is coming. And we just pray that Your will would be done in our lives here and all over this world that You love and grieve and work to rescue. So Lord, bless us. Amen. Hey, let's read. We're going to look tonight at Jonah uh, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. This is my favorite scene of one of my favorite little books in Jonah. It's going to be on the screen if you'd like to uh, follow along quietly, silently. Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe He will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, this terrified them. And they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, Do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. I love this. This is wild. This is crazy. A lot of times when we read these words, we miss the insanity of it, the urgency of it. 
We, we, we don't imagine ourselves on this little boat 2,000 years ago, just, just being rocked by the waves and swamped. It's crazy. It's tough. So we see, let's walk back through, let's circle back around, let's just walk through this passage because there's so much here that we learn about God, the God who is on mission, and how He's merciful to these neighbors. Now, of course, does Jonah live on a ship? Can I really call these sailors neighbors? Maybe you're thinking at the outset, looking at the screen, we're talking about God's mercy to neighbors. Really, I think at the outset, when we talk about God's mercy to unlikely folks, neighbors, if you think of that old story that Jesus told, whether you grew up in church or not, you know it, the Good Samaritan, the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? You tell me to love God and love my neighbor as myself, well, who's my neighbor? And I think for our purposes tonight, no, Jonah comes from a far off land, he's running, he's on his way to Tarshish, but even on the boat, he finds himself in proximity to people. And so tonight, when we ask the same question about who's my neighbor that Jesus was asked, really I think it's just anyone that's in proximity to us. People in proximity along our path. So neighbors, right at the get-go, if we're talking about being merciful to neighbors, neighbors are the people that Jonah, who is along a path away from the Lord, these people he encounters along the path that are in proximity to him are affected in this web of relationships. Jonah's on his way along the path and these neighbors get affected because they're in proximity to Jonah. So God is dealing with Jonah. God has sent this storm that we're just about to look at here again in verse 4. And, and Jonah finds himself, and he's in this web of relationships, and he's on his way out, he's in a bad spot, and it affects people around us. So as we look at this scene, and as we look at this story, you got to think, man, these sailors had no idea what they got in for when this guy Jonah hopped on their ship, went down and took a nap. They had no idea what they were in for. But in every one of our lives, we affect people around us by the decisions we make or don't make. We all exist in webs of relationships, right? And Jonah, who had never met these people before, comes into contact with them and he brings his baggage, he brings his, his decisions or indecision, and it affects people around him. And so when we look at this story of Jonah with these sailors, I hope we keep in mind, even perhaps these Jonah cards that I've been talking about and that are at the doors there, we are always existing in webs of relationship. And God is always working on mission, not just for us, but for the people we come in contact with. And so this is a story where these sailors get way more than they bargained for when Jonah hops on the boat. And they surely probably wouldn't have headed out if they saw a storm brewing. But that's exactly what happens. Look in verse 4. The storm begins. Well, how does the storm begin? We don't need a weatherman to tell us that it was pressure and this and clouds and whatever. God bowling or whatever you tell your kids. The narrator of Jonah tells us how this storm began. It says, The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. 
Now really that, that reads that he hurled a great wind on the sea. And this violent storm rises up and the ship is ready to break up and fall apart. Now what happens when we read this? Okay, What happens when we read this one verse? Okay, And we see that God hurls a wind and a storm happens. I'll tell you what happens. We, the same thing that happens a lot of times when we pick up this book and we read one verse here or one verse there, we want to take one instance of one place where God is clearly intervening and then we say, well, let's look at the storm that happened several years ago around Christmas when a tsunami comes and wipes out several thousands of people. What happens on CNN the next day? You get these guys saying, well, God is angry with the gays, y'all know. <laughs> it sounds crazy. But we, we want to sit and we want to look and we say, now, now the question is, do all the storms happen? Do, do, is God behind every storm? Is He hurling this or that? This is a loaded thing to start off at the gate. But we look here and we see that God is clearly behind this storm. So I think it's important to say that, that elsewhere, God does intervene. I think of in the Old Testament, just flipping around, in Amos, a little bit before, in chapter 4, elsewhere, it, God is intervening in nature. Droughts and these things, God is working. But also we see other places, uh, where in, like in 1 John, where he tells us this world is in chaos and it is in the lap of Satan. And so we also see places where Jesus, when he enters into a storm and the ship is about to get swamped and the winds are picking up, Jesus rebukes the storm. So we see other storms in which are a result of chaos and a result of sin because things are not the way they ought to be. And so right at the outset, when we encounter storms and God is behind it, there must be a reason that God's behind it. There must be a reason that he is doing this. But I want to start here and say a lot of times is we look at this and we think every so-called act of God, like the insurance companies claim, we look and we say God must be behind this because of A equals B. And because He's mad and because this. And frankly, I think that that's just not uh, biblically a way that we can say in every instance and in every case. But we need to say right now that God has brought a serious, violent storm on this Mediterranean Sea when Jonah's on his way to Tarshish. And he has got people in the boat in his web of relationships that are suffering and that are terrified. Experienced sailors are terrified. And so the other question I want to ask, if the Lord is behind this one, maybe not everyone, but if he's behind this one, what is he trying to do? And so we look at the book of Jonah, and this is the first of three instances where God is using some severe ways that look and feel and sound and smell like judgment. Jonah has hopped on a ship, and God on mission is not letting him get away that easy. And so this is the first time where a violent storm comes, okay? I said there was three of them. We have a violent storm that looks like judgment to this guy that bailed. Then we're going to see the fish come and swallow this guy, 
Next week we're going to look at this. And that looks like judgment. Living in a fish for three days does not sound like living at the Ritz-Carlton. That sounds bad news. Then the third time, Jonah finally in the next chapter, in chapter 3, after the fish, he's going to go and say judgment is coming. And he preaches and he cries out against Nineveh. Three times in Jonah. This is the first. Watch. Signs of judgment end up becoming moments of God's unlikely mercy. The storm is coming and why is the storm coming? It's coming because he's trying to divert Jonah to get on board and partner with the God on mission. Each of the three times, what looks painful, looks like judgment, is an opportunity that God is not wasting to throw chaos into our life in order that He may reorient us to His path. So I can't say that for every storm, but I can say it about this storm. Watch as we see in the next few weeks, these signs of judgment become expressions of God's unlikely mercy. God is intervening, He's on mission, and He's on mission in pursuing someone who's running. And so He's sending a storm to Jonah, and He may send storms into our life, right? And what we do is we say, man, this stinks! i got to get off this boat! But I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to repent, I'm not going to do any of these things. We're not going to see Jonah do any of these things. And rather, perhaps, is it because we're running? And is there some way that God is trying to get our attention? Is there some way right now where there's this pull in your heart that you just know that storms or whatever it is, is a means of mercy and grace to reorient you to His path? This is a lot out the gate, isn't it? This storm just begins here. I'll lighten it up and tell you this week how I thought about Doug the pug, my Doug the pug, my crazy little pug dog. I think how every time he's in his little pillow and he's in his little world, and I've got to get this dude out into the backyard. And so I say, Doug, potty, let's go. Come on, potty, outside, outside. And what does he do? He pops up and he tears around the corner because he wants to go hop up on the couch. And he wants me. And so what happens? I got to go and I got to pursue him. And I got to go all the way over to that couch and say, get off that couch. And, you know, and Amy's sitting there wanting to give him away. And I'm trying to be merciful, but I'm showing this sign of judgment. And I got to kick him sometimes lovingly, gently tap him. And I got to get him going that way. This storm comes because he's trying to divert Jonah. He's trying to get Jonah to reorient to God's plan. And God is clearly trying to get his attention. And dude, it's going to get worse before it gets better. So the storm hits and what happens with these sailors? They were afraid. And what do they do? Their fear leads them to cry out. What does it say? To cry out to his own God. This is what happens when the storm hits. If we don't want to just bail out and say this stinks, we want to say, God help, God help, God help. And maybe that's a moment in which we can reorient. And so what these guys are doing, they're on the ship, they're crying out to his God. Now what happens is these sailors who are experienced, it should be noted that they've probably seen a storm or two in their life, but they ain't seen anything like this. Because God's hurled it on them and it's nuts. The ship's about to break up. They cry out to his God. Why? Because just like today, different regions, different parts, different tribes, different families have different gods. 
So Jonah's trying to get off into anonymity. He's trying to get away. And he meets all of these different people, all of these different sailors who have probably come from all over the known part of the world. And each one of them come from a particular tribe and a particular family. So they're just trying out any God. Any God will do. They're afraid. It leads them to pray. The storm's going to intensify and watch as the sailors progress, as the storm gets crazier, it's the sailors who get more afraid and it actually leads them closer and closer to God. Jonah's God. So right at the outset, they're afraid. They pray. They're the neighbors in proximity to this guy Jonah. They represent probably all of these different nations and all of these different gods. And the storm hits to reorient Jonah. But actually, we're going to see that their fear, their desperation inevitably reorients them. And what's crazy is we see the storm develop and as we see Jonah's fear, I'm sorry, the sailor's fear develop. The irony is this. We are never told in this scene when the world has come down on them and the ship's about to break up, we never see Jonah. He's never told that he's afraid. We're never told that Jonah's afraid. And this dude ought to be. He's the only one that's not. So what is this dude doing? Look at the end of verse 5. These guys are panicked. They're praying. And then they throw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But, Mr. Jonah... Oh, Mr. Jonah, he had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. How is this possible? I, I, my grandparents are big time cruisers. That's what you call not people that stroll in Cadillacs down Northwest Highway, but cruisers on these ships and all this. And I know the Watsons had had a pretty wild seafaring adventure, but my grandparents told me about one where there was like a category I don't even know, and the ship was rocking, and this entire carnival cruise line from uh, the hours of like 2 a.m., the captain said from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., it's going to be nuts. And they sat there in their beds, and their heads bonked, and their, and their feet bonked, and they just sat there and they were rocking and rolling on this carnival cruise ship. We've got this old little wooden 2,000 year old ship that didn't look anything like the carnival cruise or whatever. And this dude is taking a nap. Is this not insane? How is this guy sleeping? You've got experienced sailors tossing crud overboard and he's snoozing. And what's funny is, I can't help but think of, if you're hearing the New Testament, or if you're around in our Gospel of Mark, it's so funny because guess who else napped before you give Jonah such a hard time? When there is a massive storm where it says the boat was threatening to break up and the thing was swamped and sailors and experienced people are running around in chaos, we see in places like Mark 4 where Jesus liked to take naps on carnival cruise ships that were rocking back and forth. And what was funny, if you look here in Jonah, he's in a deep sleep. We're going to talk about uh, how Jonah has been on the run and how he's just moving further and further down. He's in this sleep. And then in the New Testament, I think of places, like I said, in Mark 4, where Jesus is taking a nap. 
And Jonah's going to come up here in just a minute. And in this storm, we said God hurled the wind, but as I had mentioned also earlier, when Jesus comes up out of the nap, He rebukes the wind. He says, be quiet. And the thing was ceased. And then He asks His disciples, why are you so afraid? Here's why they were so afraid. Because this dude that was just snoozing four seconds ago just told the storm to stop immediately. So Jonah is not going to do that. But what we need to see, I think, it's fun to talk about, with both of these naps and both of these storms, the bottom line is this. They may look different where Jesus silences it and Jonah is going to get tossed out. What we see in both instances is that God, Jonah's God and Jesus' Father, have power over the violent and chaotic sea. What do we learn about God from this? Sometimes He brings storms. Sometimes He's trying to reorient us and bring us. Well, also, God, this God is so powerful, He's so powerful, He can control the wind that we can't even see. Wild. So Jonah's taking his snooze. Then what happens? The captain went to him, and by went to him, I think, ran down, grabbed him, shook him, slapped him around, splashed water on his face, and punched him in the gut. And he says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Jonah gets startled awake and watch this. I bet you he thought he was waking from a dang nightmare. And here's why. The very words that the narrator says this captain speaks, get up and call, are the very words. First words, God says way back in verse 2, at the very beginning of this book. Is it verse 2? The very first words that God says is, get up and call. God says, get up and cry out against the Ninevites. And that's when Jonah says, no way, dude, I'm out of here. And he runs, and then he falls asleep, and he's awakened by this captain to say the very same words. This is irony. This is why this book is so awesome. He says, get up and call. The irony also extends because the one who is trying to run from God, the one who is the prophet of God, gets told by this person, the captain, who does not know this God, he is told, this pagan person far from God tells the religious prophet, get up and pray. Isn't this hilarious? Who are the guys that are up and praying? Who are the guys that are supposed to be up and praying? You'd think it's this mighty, big, awesome prophet. He says, get up and call on your God. That's what we're doing, man. Maybe it's your. Maybe it's, hey, all these guys are crawling out to their gods and nothing's happening. Maybe it's this idiot that's asleep down there. Let's get him to start praying or something. I don't know. We already lost all our cargo. Our whole job is taking cargo and this dude ain't even praying. We lost it all. What is this guy doing? So, get up and call, right? Get up and go. Seek the Lord. So Jonah staggers up upstairs after this captain says, maybe your God will take notice of us. Maybe He will so that we will not perish. Right now, this guy's worldview is this. Storms come because gods get angry. Okay? This is the ancient worldview. This bad thing is happening because some God is angry with you. Okay? So we've got to make appeasement and guess what? We know that gods aren't like genies in the bottle. So he even says, maybe, just maybe, if your God is angry with you and you're the reason for all this, maybe He will take notice of us. Maybe He will pay us just a little thought in mind that we won't die. 
while you're sleeping. This is nuts. So Jonah staggers on up. And meanwhile, verse 7, the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. See, they're proactive too. The captain is waking people up and telling them to pray. And these guys are up there doing this weird thing called casting lots. What's this about, casting lots? They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Well, this was a Hebrew thing, a Jewish thing, an Israel thing. You see it in other places of your Bible, like 1 Samuel. They, and, and it's not just a Jewish thing, it's an everybody thing. This is another ancient thing. This is a pagan thing. This is an everybody thing. They took these dice. We don't know, it varies different ways, but they, we know that casting lots always entailed taking some dice that are marked in a certain way, and they throw them, and they don't gamble like they do against the liquor store wall, but they throw them down, and it's a way of a process of elimination. It's a way of seeking out from a, some divine purpose, some divine way that they would reveal what needs to happen next. Israel would use it to find out some guilty folks. Israel would use it to select a king. And pagans would use it to, to try and sort this out. And in a place like Proverbs 16, I think. Is it Proverbs 16, 33? Somebody check on that. It says that even God, no matter what, He works through this. So God's behind it, but at any rate, they're going to see who is the cause of all this ruckus. So they cast these lots, right? So, the lot fell on Jonah. Surprise, he wins the lottery. Verse 8. So they ask him. They're panicked, so they interrogate him. And they give him these five questions. Say, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And so here's what's behind all of this. Remember when I said earlier that when these guys were super afraid, what did they do? They called out to their gods, okay? So what they're saying, if each person comes from a different place and has a different god or a different family, they're, they're casting these lots and they're afraid and little by little they're starting to try and piece this together. Now they've cast the lots and it's on this guy who has taken a nap. And so here's what's happening. They're asking them all these questions and they're religiously loaded questions. So we found out that your god is, must be angry with you. Therefore, let's ask you where you're from to find out who your God is, okay? Because the Babylonians worshipped this guy and the Chaldeans or, or the Assyrians worshipped this guy and that guy and the other. And so the Hebrews, he's going to tell us, it all comes down to this. Finally, Jonah has woken up from his nap. They've pulled him outside. They've grilled him and interrogated him. And now here's what he's going to do. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. That there is Yahweh, the God of heaven. Okay? This is the God, he says, who made the sea and the dry land. What Jonah says there, when I told you earlier, he said he's not afraid. The narrator never tells us he's not afraid. What he answers is the hollowest, churchiest answer in the world. He says, I fear Yahweh. Because fear is the word worship. So he reverences and worships Yahweh. I am a Hebrew and the Hebrew people have this God. And he says the most orthodox, he knows it all. But guess who we're also told hasn't prayed, 
hasn't turned, hasn't reoriented. He says all the right things. He fears the Lord, but it's the hollowest, churchiest, nice thing to say. But he has no idea, even the foggiest idea, what he's really up against. And he's still not going to turn. It's like we can know all the right answers, right? And you can go up to any Tom, Dick, or Jane on the street in Dallas, Texas and say, tell me what Jesus is about. Oh, well, He died for my sins. Lovely. What does that have to do with anything in your life? Or does it? Oh, I know, I know, I know. Jesus is my Savior. I mean, we hear this. It's a similar kind of thing. We know all the right answers about perhaps God's love. We know all the right answers about Jesus dying for my sins. And we could tell you 50 different ways He does it. But really, is it just enough to know all the right answers about God's love or is it more to know the God who is love, right? Is it enough to just know the God who tells us that He loves us? We read it and we hear it in places like this. Or is it more to know the God who is love? It all comes down to this great confession that sounds pretty and nice. But it's coming from a dude who has no idea. Or maybe he does. I think he does. And here's why. Verse 10. This terrified them. Who's the them? The sailors. So Jonah just says, I fear Yahweh. And then in the original text it says, the men feared a great fear. Jonah says, I fear And the men were told, fear a great fear. Earlier they were afraid and they prayed, right? Now they feared a great fear. So that progression is going even more. And this terrified them. Why did it terrify them? Well, they say, what have you done? And that really translates, watch. Why would you run from the God who made the sea on a boat, dude? That's so dumb. What have you done? This is a nutso storm. And he must be really, really angry with you. And then the narrator says, hey, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Hey, I'm Jonah, son of Amittai. Hey, I'm running from the Lord. Can I hop in and take a nap? This is insane. So their fear intensifies and then verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. The storm is intensifying. God is unrelenting. He's pursuing him. It looks like judgment. It feels like judgment. It smells like judgment. And we're moving and moving. The fear is rising. The wind is rising. And then they say, what should we do to you? What should we do to appease your God to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah, just as coolly, who knows all the right answers again, because he's a prophet, don't you know, in verse 12 says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Not once has this guy, the religious guy, the righteous guy, prayed. Not once has this guy sat and said, wow, this is a nutso storm. God, what's going on here? Can I hear from you or listen from you? Is there something wrong? Is there something this? No, this guy, what he's actually saying is, rather than sort all that mess out, I'd rather you just throw me into the sea. I'd rather die. We give Jonah a bad rap because he gets on the boat to Tarshish. We give Jonah a bad rap because he's uh, against these violent Ninevites. But Jonah here sees these neighbors, these people in proximity, and he doesn't see or seem to care all that much that his sin has affected them so greatly to this point. 
The web and the things that he's brought don't just affect him. They're affecting these men around us. And at any point, I'm sure that Jonah could have said, God, I'm running from you. I don't know what you're up to, but would you please forgive me? Could I please not head back to Tarshish? Could I turn and come back to you? What we talked about last week is, you think no matter which direction you're headed, you want to say, no, I can't come back. I can't come back because I've burned too many people along the way. There's too many people in my web of relationships that know that I'm bad news, that I'm a lost cause, that I don't go to church or like church or do any of the right church things, and so I can't go back there. And what we talked about last week and we'll talk about every week is that God is on mission and God is at work around you. And when he's at work around you, he's nearer to you than you know. And so you don't have to turn and make the long trek back. You just have to turn and find him waiting for you right there to embrace you and to say, all is forgiven. You're here now and that's what matters. And Jonah says, you know what? I know what I need to do. Man, just throw me over. I'm done with this. And he knows the right answer. He says, I know if you just toss me into the sea, it will become calm. Because I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. We can find ourselves in such a place of sin where we thought we've gone so far that certainly, even if I turned, God wouldn't give a rip about me, right? We know that we've burned it so bad and we know that it's just better to die in those moments. And so that's when I just pray that God would be right there and His storm of His furious love for you would just break in. I met with a guy, an old friend of mine, who's been in a storm for two years. Two years he's been in the storm and he knows it. And he knows that he's got to turn and he's got to reorient. And I asked him this week, I said, man, I said, do you believe that God loves you. And he goes, oh yeah, dude, God loves me because he's God. And Jesus died for my sins and he sent him to the cross and he said all this right stuff. I said, all right, dude. I said, that's fine. I said, do you believe that God likes you? Do you believe that God likes you? And tears began to well up in his eyes. He says, of course not. And he started listening to all this stuff that he's done in that two years of that storm. He starts listening it and listening it and listening it and listening it and listening it. I said, dude, I said, God is wild about you. He loves you, and he's asking you, do you believe it? I talked about how his son could play Little League and drop a fly ball and strike out and come and still, with tears in his eyes, run back to his daddy and bury his head in his chest. And I said, don't you still love that guy, even if he did all the wrong things? See, we can believe all day that God likes us. And we can believe all day that He's trying to get our attention. But when brass tacks comes down to it, we would rather just die than humble ourselves and actually believe that God is as gracious and unrelentingly, unlikely merciful. We cannot bring ourselves to it. Because we've got to perform and we've got to run away from Him. We've got to sit there and face defeat when we use, when we say that wrong thing, when we react that wrong way, when we think about that person that we can't even bear to face, and we want to turn, tail, and run because God wants nothing to do with it. And a lot of times, if we're honest, we don't believe that God likes us because we can't even like ourselves. 
And so we find ourselves in the midst of the storm. And sometimes it's a storm that looks like judgment and it hurts and it's pain. But God is saying, please turn. You don't have to do this. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. So they're doing this because if Jonah's the problem, man, maybe we don't have to kill him. Maybe we just get him back on land and maybe we'll turn him, reorient him for him. So even these pagan neighbors that are calling out to all the wrong gods and doing all the wrong things, it seems like, they're the ones that are praying. They're the ones that are trying to do this. And they're the ones that have a softer heart than even this religious guy. But they cannot do it for him. No one can pray you and will you into doing what you ought to do. So the whole thing of these little silly Jonah cards that I keep mentioning and these whole neighbors and these unlikely people and we find ourselves in proximity with, we're praying because we're partnering with God that maybe they would begin to let some of that light and love and God trying to break in and maybe, just maybe, just maybe this one time, they don't want to get thrown overboard. And maybe just this one time, they'll listen when God is trying to get their attention. So they're trying to row him back, but guess what? They could not, because now for the third time, the sea grows even wilder than before. Remember the first time when the sea got wild? What did they do? They cried out to who? You can say it. Their gods? It's okay. It's okay. We'll get out of here. It's time to go. They cried out to their gods. Guess what happens? As the storm comes and it progresses and they get scareder and scareder. Remember last time in verse 10, I told you that they feared a great fear. Guess what he says here? Verse 14. They feared a great fear of who? The Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Yahweh, Jonah's God, he didn't cry out to, but unlikely of unlikeliest situations, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Because we have got to toss him over now, right? God, Yahweh, do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, I'm just glossing over the fact that they just called him an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. They recognize the power of the God who made the sea and the land. But they throw man overboard. Verse 15, they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew what? Calm. Just like Jonah said it would because he knew all the right answers, didn't he? But Jonah in this moment is not going to reorient. But who will? Verse 16, at this the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. This is crazy. The storm is over now. And we see the progression of their fear. And the fear and the storm that was designed to turn and reorient Jonah actually reorients the sailors who were far from God, though in proximity to Jonah, and we see that God's sign of judgment, a violent storm that could have taken all of their lives, in fact becomes an expression of God's mercy. The irony is, the sailors got it, Jonah didn't. 
And any listener says, no, the religious righteous person, right? No. Any thoughts you had about the good guys got thrown overboard with that religious guy Jonah. And all the wrong people, all the wrong people, God welcomes mercifully. So they made a sacrifice and vows. They called on Israel's God, Israel's way. How would their lives be different if Jonah didn't get in their life and get in their boat and take a nap? It was rough. That storm was crazy. But even in Jonah's disobedience, because he has this web of relationships, God can still work. Through Jonah, He can work through me, He can work for you. Even in the unlikeliness, unlikeliest sailors. It's wild. We see that God's created not only the land and the sea, and He can exercise His power over it, it can also extend to the people He's created, those lost causes. I love this. I love this because Jonah, again, does the wrong things, and God still does everything right. He's making good from chaos. He makes good from the chaos of the storms in our lives. But always, 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 we should be asking, Lord, where are You? Where am I? And where do we need to come back together? Where do I need to turn to find You? That's what it comes down to. His mercy doesn't know any boundaries. We can't stop Him. He's on mission for not only the people in our web of relationships and the nations of this world, whether it's ISIS in northern Iraq or the cartels of South America or the poorest of the poor in the jungles or the recesses of this globe. He is on mission and He is relentlessly pursuing us that He might show His mercy. So, let's pray. God, thank You for... This book, Jonah, I love it. It's wild and it's fun and it's exciting. So Lord, I just pray that You would reveal Yourself to be wild and fun and exciting. I pray that we wouldn't just know all the right things. I pray that we would know You. Even that phrase has become a trite little Christian thing. But Lord, I just pray that Your kingdom would break in. That we would listen and find You because You are trying to find us. So would we turn to you by your grace and your power. We love you. We thank you. Bless us tonight. Amen.